0: Thank you, Tony and Pastor Aaron. I'm going to invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6 on the heels of all of those carols and even a new one. If you hadn't heard that song before, Oh Come All You Unfaithful, it's been a favorite of mine over the holidays recently, and I'm glad that they could sing it for us this morning. Mark chapter 6, as we make our way back to Mark, a gospel that we've been journeying through uniquely timed now for Christmas because it's the only gospel that doesn't speak about the birth of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Uh, But it certainly talks about Christ in many other ways. I find it interesting to just notice trends. Have you noticed trends in, in, in studies and what becomes popular? Not just in styles, but often in speech as well. I'm going to give a vocab word to you today that has become maybe trendy to use. And the word is amazing. You've heard that word, you use it all the time. It used to be other words were more trendy to use than amazing, right? Maybe you used to say, that's radical, right? That would have been one. <laughs> or gnarly, that would be really cool. Uh, I grew up in New England, as I know some of you do as well. Uh, the, the, the New Englanders have a weird one. I'll acknowledge that. Some of you are already chuckling because you know exactly where I'm going with that. Uh, but for New Englanders, if it's cool and awesome or gnarly, we will say that's totally wicked. right? Now, I know that's weird, and uh, some of you are just shocked that New Englanders doing that. Well, for those of us that grew up in New England... Uh, I already saw people chuckling about that because he knew exactly where I was going with that particular topic. But amazing, that's kind of the word that you see that's kind of trendy to use. We can be amazed at all kinds of things. I'm sure you're going to have stores that amaze you. You're going to have scenes that amaze you. I was watching one time uh, where there was a a TV show, and uh, the guy, there was like a, just like one of those telemercial things, type of things, and they came in, and he was going to show us some kind of cutting utensil that was just amazing. Apparently, it was one of those things that you had to have in your kitchen, because it could, I don't know, peel, cut, dice, cook, I don't know what else it could do. It was amazing. And the guy said, if you buy this tool, you could do the same thing that he was doing on this telemark, you know, commercial type of thing. You know what my response was? No, you can't. <laughs> that was my response. I, I thought, no, maybe you can, but that is not going to work for me. But he was saying, that, this tool is so amazing, it's hard to believe. And I was thinking, you're right, uh, it is really hard to believe. You know, in that way, I, I think that I am a lot like, at least in small part, and I know any time illustration he uses, it breaks down at some point. But I'm a lot like the people in Jesus' time. You see, it's easy to think that Jesus went about his ministry, and he performed all these miracles, and he, per- and he spoke with such authority that everyone that heard and saw these things everywhere was just getting saved. And there were like flocks of people coming to him. And it's easy to imagine when you read these miracles that if that were to happen in 2022, we would see just masses of people coming to Christ if that were to happen today. The reality is that that's not exactly what we're reading in the Gospel accounts. Because there's a lot of people who marvel and are amazed at Jesus. But it's not enough to just be amazed. We're going to have a very simple message this morning, and that's our theme. It's not enough to be amazed. And we'll be looking at the first six verses of Mark chapter 6. Here's what it says in the Gospel account. And he went from thence and came into his own country. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished. They were amazed, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him, that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judah, and Simon, And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty works, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick and folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went round about the villages teaching. In our passage today we read, That Jesus has left Capernaum and he is going about 20 miles southwest to his hometown. It says in verse 1, he went there and came to his hometown. Now the King James says country. The words there in verse 1, it says he went to his own country. The word could be translated his own hometown. That's where he's coming back to and some of your translations say that. And this is where Jesus grew up. This is where he was a kid. If you lived in Nazareth at that time you would have known Jesus. Jesus is going back to his hometown. Nazareth wasn't a big, particularly big community, so it's not a stretch to think that most everybody either knew him personally or at least had heard about him when he was growing up. It says in verse 1, his disciples followed him. This is not unusual at that time or culture. When a rabbi traveled or a teacher of any note, then those that were his disciples, just like these disciples, were following Jesus as the a teacher, they would have followed him as, a, as kind of a traveling classroom. And it says in verse 1 that when the Sabbath had come, now that would have been on a, Sabbath, a Saturday at that time. That's the day the Jews worshipped. worship on, We don't worship on Saturday, we worship on Sunday. We do this because we are a church, we're in the church age. But back then, the church had not yet begun, and so they are still meeting on a Saturday, the church yet still not being formed, and he begins to teach in the synagogue, it says. This would have been, by the way, the synagogue in Nazareth. This would have been the very place where the Jews would have gathered when Jesus was growing up. This is where he would have been with his family growing up in those times. This is that very synagogue. And according to Luke chapter 4, this would have been the very place where Jesus had begun his public ministry. In fact, in Luke chapter 4, it says in verse 16, he had come to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. This was his custom. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me and he has anointed me. And he reads that scroll. And then he says, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. These people that Jesus is now reading to in the synagogue in Mark 4 are the same people that Jesus had read and said those things that we read about in Luke chapter four. So here's the hometown boy, if you will, who comes back to Nazareth, and he's coming back to the very synagogue where it had all begun. And no doubt, there is a crowd gathered there for many different reasons, not the least of which they've heard many of the accounts that we've already gone through in the Gospel of Mark, and they've wondered and been amazed at them, and not the least of which that this is the guy they know about. Not the least of which this is the guy who said he is the fulfillment of the Isaiah scrolls. And you remember the reaction of the crowd at that time was not all that positive. And they come in and it says in verse 2 that they were astonished. They were amazed. They were watching Jesus. They're listening to Jesus. They're hearing about his amazing ministry. And they are astonished at what they're hearing. No doubt what they are seeing. But as we'll see in this text, amazement does not equal obedience, and it certainly doesn't equal salvation. It's not enough to just view Jesus as an amazing figure or an amazing teacher. You must accept him as Lord. Now there are many people, even today, who are amazed by Jesus, and yet they never move to accept him. This state of mind is still with us. People seem to have little trouble with Jesus going about from place to place, preaching a message of peace, love, and acceptance like an itinerant philosopher. That's no problem. It's not even all that complicated or controversial to celebrate Christmas for that matter. But when you tell them that he is the only Savior and that rejecting him will lead them to a place called hell, suddenly the amazement does not equal acceptance. But Jesus is not a person just a person that you can pedal down to your own whims and reinvent according to whatever your philosophy may suit you, Jesus is preaching a message of repentance that says you either accept or you reject, there's no middle ground. And just being amazed does not move you in a particular direction of acceptance. And that's what we read in Mark chapter six. But these are those that we read about that are amazed at the ministry of Jesus What is it that they are astonished about in verse two? Again, the word translated astonished in verse two could be translated amazed. This is a word that literally means to strike, like somebody that hits you. It's the idea that you are just kind of going through your normal routine of life and suddenly something blasts you upside the head. That's what it means. That this word, this very word translated astonished, which could be translated amazed, occurs 13 times in the New Testament. And every single one of those 13 times, it refers to the human response to God every single time. It's as if mankind is going through their journeys and then they are slammed with the reality of who God is. And what is it they are amazed about in this passage? Well, they're amazed, number one, about the ministry of Jesus and what strikes them first They are amazed by his words. Notice verse 2. The many listeners were astonished. These folks were amazed, listening to his teaching. Remember what he said back in chapter 1 of Mark? Here's what he said in Mark chapter 1, verse 22. It says in 1, verse 22, they were astonished, that's the same word, at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes who taught them. No, most people do not like this kind of teaching. It was true back then, and it's true today. But Jesus taught with this unparalleled, unequaled authority. And part of the shock of the people felt on that day is that they were not used to this kind of teaching, but they were used to teaching. Jesus wasn't like them. After all, it says in chapter 1, verse 22, he taught, but he didn't teach like the scribes. The scribes, as we've noted and even in that passage, were the lawyers of the day. They were the experts of the laws of Moses. Sabbath by Sabbath, they would open the scriptures and they would read, actually, the Old Testament scrolls, but the scribes departed from the authority of scripture and had given themselves over to spending the bulk of their teaching rendering second-hand opinions. And so they would read from the Isaiah scrolls and then they would quote from another rabbi Or they would quote from the fellow scribes, or they would quote from the poets and the various philosophers of the day, but they would never actually take another step to actually apply whatever the scroll was. They would just tell you what it meant. It would be like teaching with no application. But as Jesus stood up to speak, there was no worldly clatter in his message. As Jesus stood up to speak, there was Only the unadulterated speakings of truth from the word of God. And he went a step further. Remember what he said in his Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said to you. That's like what the scribes would say. But I say to you this. He is applying the realities of the truth. William Hendrickson, the great commentator, speaks then of the astonishment of the people when he says Jesus spoke the truth. The scribes gave their corrupt, evasive reasonings. Jesus presented matters of great significance. He spoke on matters of life and death and eternity. They wasted their times with trivialities. Jesus preached with system and structure. They rambled on and on. Jesus excited their curiosity. Their speeches were dry as dust. Jesus spoke as the lover of men. They spoke as one who loved themselves. Jesus spoke with authority. They borrowed from fallible sources rather than from the word of God. My friend, there is nothing more shocking to the human senses than the full counsel of the word of God, especially when that word is brought to bear on the issues of life. I trust that for all of us here today, we will never become so accustomed to hearing truth that we become, as it were, dull of hearing. We've heard that passage before. There should be a shock to our senses to say, this is God, we are man, save me God. That is the shock that they had. But they were also shocked by his wisdom. His teaching caused them to ask a question. Where did this man learn these things, and what is this wisdom that has been given to him? They had never heard someone teach like Jesus. When Jesus preached, his words were filled with truth. The people heard him declare old truths, it seemingly in a new way. They listened as he f- taught spiritual truth by using common, everyday things in parabolic form to communicate truths, to lay down a picture side by side, parallel to the truth that he meant to convey. And while his illustrations may have called on the common, The truth that he preached was anything but common. His words left them shaking their hands in wonderment. Never had they heard content such as this. Never had it been so clearly presented before. And these people had sat through a lifetime of sermons. They had heard sermons coming out of their ears, so to speak. They had grown up in the synagogues, in this synagogue. It was not for hearing lack of sermons that they were amazed. It's not as though they came to the synagogue and for the first time someone was teaching. That's not what was going on. It was the kind of sermon that shocked them. That is to say, Jesus was commanding in his teaching both in what he said and how he said it. Jesus taught with the very authority of the word of God. He basically communicated, it is this way or no other way. That's a wisdom they never heard before. And to back it all up, they were amazed by his works. Notice again in verse 2, what is this? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. That means Jesus is either performing miracles right there in Nazareth, or that they had heard of these miracles performed in other places. Then they could not believe that a young man from their own town could do these miracles that it attributed to them. When growing up, they had not known Jesus to possess such amazing, miraculous powers, much different than what others who would include between the Testaments books that say that Jesus did. They had not seen these things. They had watched him for 30 years and never seen him or his family do anything just quite this shocking. So where did this call come from? Where is this? Who is this guy? Like the slander of the Pharisees, they may have been even implying that he may be demonically possessed. Because there was no denial, by the way, that these miracles had happened. It's not as though they're saying, well, they say a miracle had happened, but it's not really true. No, they know it's happened. They're just wondering how. And these amazing actions were to show them that God was at work in the words and wisdom of Christ. These miracles were to authenticate the moving of God in the person of Jesus they had heard about Christ's power over demons, leprosy, a paralytic, a withered man, a, uh, the storm, demons, diseased, even death itself. Miracles flowed from Christ. They acknowledged that power. But they failed to acknowledge where that power came from. These people were absolutely astonished at all that they'd heard from Jesus. You would think that the most normal thing to do in that amazement would be to believe, wouldn't you? You would think if you had heard all of this, you'd never heard anybody talk like this before, and you'd seen all these crowds, you'd never seen that before, and you'd have seen true miracles. There's no denial of the miracles had taken place. You would think, wrapped up in all of that, people would accept Christ. And by the way, there's still that kind of thinking even within our churches at times. Maybe not with miracles, but maybe just with celebrities. Celebrities. We think, if God could save, like, this famous person and prop them up, then think of all the people that get saved. Or, or we might see a, a person that's particularly talented and a particularly good skill, and we say, boy, if, if they could use that talent for God, just, just think of how many people were got saved. But you realize, friend, that's not how God works. First of all, God loves to use weak things to confound the wise, And God can use simple things to do amazing things. And so these people, they had all of that. And the the, the logical conclusion we would say is, well, then they'll just accept. And perhaps that leads to another amazement that I get in this text. Number two, I'm amazed at their rejection of Jesus. They simply would not believe. Verse three sets before us a series of rhetorical questions from the crowd. Is this not the carpenter? We know who this is. This is the carpenter. We know who his stepdad was. This guy was not a theologian or a philosopher, they're saying. He's just a carpenter. They say, is he not the son of Mary? We know his mother. We know this guy. It just makes no sense that he could have this wisdom and these kind of miracles. He's just a carpenter born of Mary. And his brothers, James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and his sisters, not here. With, are they not here with us? They knew where Jesus was from, who his mother was, who his siblings were, but the main issue is they had no explanation for what Jesus is now doing. Jesus was teaching with over-the-top wisdom. Jesus was healing people with amazing power. They knew he was from their town. He wasn't a philosophical student. He was a carpenter. He wasn't some rabbinical golden child born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He was the child of a carpenter of Mary, do you remember the gossip about Mary that we read about in the other gospel accounts, even with the pregnancy of Christ? All of that was part and parcel to the stories and lore of Jesus in Nazareth. They had no explanation. Now what do you think would be the most natural response? You would think that they would listen to his words, they would see his great works, and they would say, we have no explanation but to believe. But they would not. In fact, they took offense at him. Verse three. These people of Nazareth should have been the first ones to believe Jesus was God. Even the demons believed. But the people of Jesus' own hometown would not believe. To take offense is the opposite of believing. Rather than looking at him and saying, yes, you are God, I will worship you, they are saying, I reject you. The people of Nazareth were basically saying, I am not going to believe you. Who do you think you are? I was born in this town too. The word offended carries the idea of to cause to stumble or to be repelled to the point of abandonment. Because these people could not explain Jesus, they refused to listen to Jesus. This is very different than the other chapters of Mark at this point. Remember the other chapters of Mark? In the other chapters of Mark, we see Jesus traveling, and the crowds get huge. Remember this? I mean, so large that Jesus invents the first water pulpit. He has his disciples come out and say, hey, get me a boat so I can preach out in this area, because the crowds keep pushing me out into the water. That's how big these crowds are, but not in Nazareth. There might be crowds... But they are not there to listen to Jesus. They do not want to hear from Jesus. And these people did what all people do when they cannot understand someone. They resort to ridicule. Ridicule is the final refuge of a small mind. They call him the son of Mary. This was never done in that society. A male was always referred to as the son of his father, even if his father was dead which some commentators point to and say it's likely at this point that Joseph wasn't there. To call a boy the son of his mother was a clear implication of something in that culture. To say that someone was the son of a mother instead of the son of the father, when that culture was to say that this boy was the son of a harlot. And the people were calling the birth of Jesus into question, of course, because the exception of the truth would be the accept the reality of the questions that they were now asking. And they consistently called his birth into question. The people of Nazareth could not explain Jesus, so they reacted with unvarnished ridicule. Listen to the contempt in their voices. voices. From whence hath this man these things? They could not explain it. They took offense, and they refused to honor him. Notice verse four, it says, Jesus said to them, a prophet is not honored except in his own hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. A prophet has any honor everywhere else. Jesus has gone to other places, has been received well. I wonder if even the disciples, when they left Capernaum, were thinking, maybe don't leave Capernaum. I mean, they've all seen these things. They are excited about what is happening at this point. Why leave? If you go back, what is their response going to be? By the way, do you remember the response of his family in chapter three? Maybe this was running through his disciples' minds as well. The last time we bumped into your family, this is their response. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. That was their response. They refused to believe, even his family members refused to believe. Now that would make sense. This kind of rejection, refusal of honor in the hometown would make sense if we're talking about normal human relationships. Maybe you've heard the phrase, don't meet your heroes. (laughs) Because oftentimes when you finally get close enough to someone that you viewed to be your hero, if you finally find yourself close enough to them, you'll find that there's a lot of warts. There's a lot of problems. Because that's just reality for all of us. We're just not perfect people. We've got a lot of problems. So it would be expected in normal human relationships to say, well, maybe this people, these particular group, they just know him so well. But that can't be said for Jesus, is it? Jesus is the one person that the more you get to know him, the more you grow to love him. And the more you know about him, the more you realize how pure and righteous he really is. Here is Jesus, and they still would not believe. They would not give him the kind of welcome he deserved. They were amazed, but they were not moved. And it's not enough to just be amazed. You must accept Christ. But maybe the only thing in this passage that is more amazing than those other two amazements is the verse when it says that verse six, he marveled because of these and their unbelief. Here is Jesus' amazement. Jesus is amazed and we should be amazed at Jesus' rejection of unbelief. This might be the most amazing thing in the whole passage. Notice verse 5. He could not do anything there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. What does that mean? It means Jesus was actually hindered by their unbelief. It's kind of hard to wrap your brain around. How do you hinder Jesus? You can't hinder Jesus. It's not like people can stop Jesus. And yet the text says he could not do any miracle there. Maybe there's a better way of looking at it. Don't think of this as someone trying, tying Jesus' hands behind his back and not letting him be a blessing. Let's remind ourselves of who it is that Jesus heals even in the passages we've already read. Jesus heals those who have faith. As a rule, Jesus doesn't walk up to people, just in the streets, and they say to him, you're not God, I don't believe you, and Jesus says, well let me prove it. Poof, you can see. That's not how Jesus performs his miracles. That's not how it goes. And Jesus comes up to people and they say to him, Lord, we believe, heal us. And what does he do? Do it according to your faith, is what he says. So, what does this text mean? Jesus in his hometown, and the people are amazed, but they do not believe. They won't believe. And it says he could not do any miracle there. But notice the exception except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. I notice the exception because Mark notes it there. There were a few faithful remnant. Yet perhaps the most amazing verse in the text is found in verse six. And he, Jesus, marveled. The NASB actually translate verse six this way, and he was amazed at their unbelief. Verse one, then the NASB says, he, they were amazed at him. Verse six, he was amazed at them. Here is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, looking at the people who came to save And he is amazed. These are the people who have heard his teaching. They they know what he taught, what he believes, what he taught them to believe. These are the people who have heard or seen, even, with their own eyes, his miracles. These are the people who know clearly who he claims to be. He said as much when he revealed to them the Isaiah scrolls in this very synagogue. They had all the evidence But these people refuse to accept Jesus. Friends, have you ever considered the possibility that more folks know about Jesus, the more folks know about Jesus, doesn't necessarily mean that they will accept Jesus? According to the Christian publisher LifeWay's recent polling, 85% in 2022, 85% of U.S. households own a Bible, 85%. The average household owns 4.3 Bibles. And yet, we see a tragic decline in biblical ideals in this nation. And it's not a direct result of a lack of Bibles, is it? There's a word here for the church. Jesus shows up when we meet. Matthew 18, verse 20, he desires to teach us truth and to give us truth that we might grow. And if we come to the house of the Lord expecting some from God, we will be amazed at what he can do. However, if we come with an I've seen it all before attitude, and that's how we gather to open God's word, God will be amazed at our attitude, and we won't get much. William Barclay put it this way, there can be no preaching in the wrong atmosphere, The congregation is responsible for at least half of every sermon. In an atmosphere of expectancy, the least effort will catch fire. In an atmosphere of coldness or indifference, the most spirit-filled sermons will fall flat. What's the point? If we don't want him here at this church, Jesus will do what he did in Nazareth. He will leave and go elsewhere with his message and his miracles. We can have what we want, is what I'm saying. We can have glory and power and the manifest presence of Christ as we come to worship him. Or, we can have cold, dead orthodoxy. But you cannot have both. We just sang, Hark, the Herald, Angels sing." ever heard the story of how that came to be? It was written by one of the Wesley brothers. And Wesley came to come into a particularly stoic time in church history. And there was a remnant who were not all that big fans of singing Christmas carols particularly. And so they kind of banned them from their church assemblies. We're not going to do that kind of stuff. (laughs) It's Kind of a funny thing to think about, but that's what they did. And so he wrote his own Christmas carol. If you won't sing, hark! The herald angels sing. That's his point. I'm afraid that we Baptists have become a lot like the people of Nazareth. We are so familiar with the things of God, the message of the Bible, the crucifixion of Jesus, the burial and resurrection of the Christ that we are no longer moved by them. We were reminded of what Jesus did for us, but they don't really move us like we used to. When's the last time you just wept and thanked God for your salvation? When's the last time you just looked through the gospel account of Jesus and you were just moved in your spirit to recognize, that's that's for me. But I fear we have allowed our hearts to grow cold and calloused towards the things of God. If there's a passage in Mark so far that we look like We're more Nazareth folk than anybody else. Others have been saved and been moved and others have never been saved because they haven't seen us moved. Never embraced the death of Christ as their own because they don't see any real lasting change or effect in your life and you claim to be one of his family members. Has the Lord spoken to your heart today? If he has, let me ask you to do something very unusual, perhaps for Americans that are so just personal and it's just all about me. Let me ask us to reflect on the title of our series. Friends, this gospel wasn't given for you. It was given that you might glorify him. That's what it's all about. And the most amazing thing in this world today is that Jesus came to win lost souls to himself. Like you. That you might glorify him. But it's not enough to just be amazed at Jesus as a figurehead or teacher, is it? You can know all these stories. You can have John 3.16 memorized. But until Jesus is yours now for your Savior, he will not be yours in heaven one day. You must accept him as Lord. It's not enough to just say the Bible is cool and I'm glad it can tie together a group of people to like each other. Frankly, we don't always like each other. (laughs) Because we're all kind of broken. But we serve a perfect Lord who loves us enough to come in to us that we wouldn't always be like Nazareth folks. I want us to come back to verse three as we close. Is this not the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph and Judah, and Simon? Are these not his sisters here with us? Let's do a pretty quick exercise, would you? Flip your page and just kind of land towards the end of your Bible, and you'll come to discover that one of those people has a book named after him. It's James. And there was a time James was like all the other people, apparently in Nazareth, unmoved, But amazed. But there was a time when he would later come to write the book of James. And as he wrote the book of James, here the brother of Jesus writes this book and he opens his letter by saying in verse 1 This is me, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, he moved a whole lot to the point where he recognized. This is Christ, my Savior. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the stories, even of the people of Nazareth, who were amazed, but not altogether that moved. Lord, men, we come to you this morning, and we sing the Christmas carols that are all so familiar to us, and we hear the truths of Scripture that are read, and even the truths that are played through instruments like handbells, Lord, May we recognize the reality of what it was that you did for, to come to earth, to die on a cross for our sins. May we not just be amazed. May we be, may we be moved as well. With every head bowed and every eye closed, the instruments are going to begin to play. Would you stand with me as the instruments play the song, What Will You Do With Jesus? Would you respond even as God has spoken to you?